Two weeks ago, my heart was broken as I read an account that was all over the different news networks about an Indiana bus crash that killed a pastor and his pregnant wife and their chaperone taking young people to camp. And the reason this was so moving to Carolyn and I is we can't tell you how many times not only have we been on youth trips with our small children on a bus with teens, but how many times I actually was the bus driver. As the account went, a youth pastor and his pregnant wife were among three people killed when a bus overturned in Indiana. The bus was returning from a camp in Michigan. Chad Phelps, who's the pastor of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, and his wife, uh, he's a youth pastor, uh, were expecting their second child actually this month. The third fatality was Tanya Weindorf. She was a a mother of five acting as a chaperone on the trip. Uh, To make matters worse, he was the youth pastor. His father was the senior pastor. It injured 19 people. Uh, There were 40 passengers on the bus, most of them teenagers. The driver said that... uh, The vehicle's brakes failed as he was trying to make a left turn, and the bus ended up on its side. The driver was actually somebody who was a member of the church, too. See, this is really difficult for me because uh, um, not only does the thought of the the senior pastor losing his son and his daughter-in-law and, you know, by our uh, beliefs, his, his granddaughter, who was only a month away from seeing everyone's face, uh, we... We think about tragedy in ways that um, makes us think, you know, what what is life about? What what are we going to do with the time that we have? Uh, It causes me to to really deeply think about what the value of life is. Uh, It reminds me as well, too, of an encounter I had, a really close call. I was taking our church bus when I was a youth pastor in Florida to get serviced, and as I was... Um, driving this bus back from the service station, the, I was by myself in the bus. The steering completely gave out. I had no control uh, of the bus. And so I'm barreling down the road, and I had no direction, no ability to direct the bus any different way. And so I just slammed on the brakes and brought it to a halt and then somehow or another managed to get the bus to the side of the road but I just think, what would have happened if I'd had a bus full of kids? And uh, as, it, as it turns out, it, this week as I was uh, continuing my preparations and the psalm of the week here in our series of uh, my favorite psalm, uh, I, I thought about how important it is to have direction and to have breaks and to have different things functioning in our lives. I, I mean this in the most important way you can think of in life, and that is that You can have all of the energy and all of the excitement of your life moving and all of the inertia taking you through life, but if you lack the capacity to steer or lack the capacity to uh, hold yourself up when you're potentially walking into something dangerous, uh, you you are really living a very dangerous existence. Uh, I... I have often characterized my relationship with my wife, Carolyn, in terms of uh, steering mechanisms. For instance, 
I, I have often said, and I don't think she would disagree, that in our relationship, I'm the gas and she's the brakes. And I know you're saying, Chuck, I've heard you talk a lot. You definitely are the gas. All right, but seriously, uh, I tend to be the one that wants to barrel forward. Go, 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 go. And she tends to be the person that is cautious. And the reason we've avoided disaster is because I haven't been stupid enough to keep my foot on the gas when my wife has said, listen, let's apply the brakes here. And the reason we've gotten anywhere in life is because we've worked together in those times where Carolyn has said, you know, I might otherwise want to pause, but you know what? We're going to go forward. You go ahead and push on the gas. God has been really faithful to us, but part of that process for us has been involving other people involving other people in showing and giving us direction, allowing them to speak into our lives. You know, I think also when I think about our lives and direction, I think of a ship, uh, particularly a sailboat, that a sailboat really is beautiful and has all sorts of potential to go all sorts of directions, but without a rudder, it's a mess. You could blow wherever the wind might take you. You have no ability to control the forward movement of a sailboat in the wind without a rudder. And as we look at our psalm today, Psalm 19, I want to ask you a a really important question. And I'll share with you a couple of contemporary stories, what I mean, experiences I've had of late, where this issue becomes more and more important and more and more uh, necessary for people to think about. And that is, what is going to be the guide of your life? What is going to be the steering mechanism? What's going to be the brakes? What's going to keep you from disaster? Who or what will you give authority to direct your life? Psalm 19 is referred to as a Torah psalm. It very specifically divides the psalm into a celebration of God's revelation. Now, a Torah psalm, there are many of them, the largest being Psalm 119. These are songs or poems of celebration about the word of the Lord, its benefits, its directives, its, its prophetic utterances that give us what we need, which is a picture of God. And in this passage, Psalm 119, we have a very distinct separation between what is referred to as general revelation and specific revelation. General revelation would be that which is uh, given to everyone on planet Earth. It is visible from creation. And then specific revelation or special revelation is a revelation that has been given by God through people that he ordained as prophets, people that were trustworthy and brought forth the word of God, the inspired scriptures that we have. Now, we do believe that the Holy Spirit teaches us both through extra-biblical means, general revelation. We think that there are things we can learn about God, and we'll get to some of those. And we also think that the presence of God's Holy Spirit enables a believer to be directed by God, independent of Scripture, that you can hear and you can experience the Lord. But let me say this. We also contend that God would never be at the heart of something that contradicts that which he has given to us in his special revelation. In other words, you may be somebody who, think God is, who thinks God is directing you to do something. You may feel like God has given you some special notion of what you're supposed to do in your life. And, and who am I or anybody else to question you? 
It is your conscience before God. But if your supposed directive from the Lord contradicts something that's in his word, I'm here to tell you today as your friend, as your pastor, if you're a part of Prism Church, that's not the Lord. All right, if what you're being told contradicts scripture, it's not the Lord. Recently, I had an encounter with an old friend and uh, his marriage is falling apart. And in speaking with his spouse, um, I was sharing the only thing that any pastor or any spiritual leader has to give you. And that is their experience, their experience in life and the scriptures. I'm not an expert. All I can do is point you to the counsel of God's word. And you can decide whether or not you want to obey God's word. You can decide whether or not you're going to let God's word be the steering mechanism of your life. But that's all really anybody in my capacity has for you. And in this particular case, as has been the case in many, many situations, people will say to me, I know scripture says that, but. And there's always the but afterwards. And what I want you to know is anytime you follow your but, you're going to end up in trouble. I can tell you that from my own personal experience. I am an expert at moral failure. Listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. I'm somebody who's made gargantuan mistakes in life, almost life-costing mistakes in life. As somebody who has foolishly ignored Scripture over and over again, allow me, please, to plead with you. That's not necessarily a good strategy for success in life. I mean, if that's your goal, I got to tell you, Trusting the scriptures is ultimately what you have to do. There is danger in submitting your life to anyone beyond what the scriptures direct you to. You've been around people who were influenced potentially by cults. I've had them come to my door. There's a glazed look on their face like they can't think for themselves and they're actually not even a real person. It's sort of like, hello, Nice to meet you. And, and you just never really get the idea that you're really talking with a real person. You've heard potentially that cult-like figures, by the sheer power of their personality or perhaps the dark world with which they've been associated, they can sway people to take what they say at face value without checking in the, against those things that the scriptures have given us as checkpoints. Your elders your pastors, the people in your life that you consider spiritually mature, and most importantly, the word of the living God. See, you and I are in a place where we're walking through life and there has never been a more important time for God's people to cling to the reality of God's word. R.C. Sproul, who was one of my professors at Reformed Theological Seminary, he said this with regards uh, to the power of Scripture and the problem of the church. He said, and I quote Dr. Sproul, I think the greatest problem, the greatest difficulty, the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. You see, and what happens is, is that you and I, absent of God's direction, are left to fend for ourselves, and we are broken, and we are fallen, and we need his word to give us clarity.
So let's take a look quick, as quick as I can make it, from Psalm, one, uh, from Psalm 19 about what these two particular revelations have for us, both general and specific. And the first thing I'll share with you this morning is this. God's world reveals his glory. God's world reveals his glory. And I'm reading from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Twice in this passage here, we're, we're, we're discussing the language of the heavens, and this is language that is akin to the Genesis account of God's creation. And what we're told is that by the sheer magnitude of what we see in creation, we can see and discern characteristics of the, of the Almighty. And, and I think that's true in any context. For instance... When people write music and write songs, it tells you something about them. When people write books, when they write poems, when they write different things, it tells you something about them. We have really accomplished artists in this church, and I won't embarrass them, but I'm telling you, there are some people in our church that do and, and, and do their art at the highest levels of our culture and that you can tell things about people by virtue of what they create, their meticulousness, their silliness, their, their, their sense of humor. Ed, that's my buddy Ed in the back who does cartoons. You can, you can tell things about people's personalities. And then by the same token, you can look at the, 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 the world that God has created and you can say there are things we get to know and learn about our creator right here and right now on a side note when oftentimes the heavens are used pl plurally in scripture as would be the case in 2 Corinthians 12 2 where uh, the apostle Paul talks about the third heaven uh, what in the ancient world, often the heavens were described as the, the immediate skies above us, the heavens above uh, the second heaven would have been the stars and the planets, and then the third heaven would have been an actual place where God resided, an actual place where the people of God were, uh, had taken refuge subsequent to their deaths, and a place where ultimately we'll all worship God one day. Now, that said... It is the immediate, it is what we can see in these heavens that tells us about God. In Romans uh, 1, chapter 18, I mean, Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, we hear from the Apostle Paul's words that these same heavens give us clarity about God's existence. The heavens, it says in verse 18 of Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, now, this is obviously God's heaven, against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. We, by virtue of the nature, the world in which we live, we can tell that there's a creator. And this is an age-old philosophical debate, and I tend to find myself siding with those who would say, there is never, ever in the history of man, let alone the history of the world, been a time where something spontaneously created itself. Dr. Sproul again said, nothing could be more irrational than the idea that something came from nothing. And you and I might have a discussion and debate about what God is like. But the idea that we could have creation without a creator is simply illogical. I had a professor of archaeology at West Virginia University who was no, like, evangelical Bible thumper who said the very same thing to our this enormous mass class that you go to at big state universities. He said, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it was roughly this, that the matter of which he spoke, matter, didn't spontaneously create itself. So where did it come from? And he told our class, if you want to agree with the majority of really clear thinkers in the world, if you want to believe that there is a God who created this world, you'd be in really good company. And that's simply because there's no explanation for where all of this stuff around us came from apart from a creator. And this is why the psalmist would write in Psalm 14.1, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Matthew Henry, who is a Theologian, he's deceased, obviously, but he's from history, great commentator on the Bible, had a, had a section that I thought was worth me mentioning. I quote him, from the excellency of the work of God, we may easily infer the infinite perfection of its great author. From the brightness of the heavens, we may collect that the creator is light. Their vastness of extent bespeaks his immensity, their height, his transcendency and sovereignty, their influence upon this earth, his dominion and providence and universal beneficence. And all declare his almighty power by which they were first made and continue to this day according to the ordinances that were settled. And this is what the Apostle Paul said. There are two qualities at least, his eternal power and his divine nature that can be clearly seen from creation and a person intent on autonomy from God will look at the sky and try with all of their might to imagine a world without him they will work really diligently and I know because I've been there and done that work really diligently to push away from their mind and their heart the notion that there is something beyond this world who was responsible for creating us. Ultimately, the reason that they would do that would be because I can attest to, and I'm certain you can too, is that we would like our autonomy from any expectations that God might have about how we would live. Jesus was said in the Gospel of John to have been light. And you're familiar with John 3.16 if you've watched a baseball game from my era, it was a rainbow, hair, a rainbow wig guy that used to have the sign. Uh, it's gotten less crazy since then. But John 3.16 is a pretty standard verse that most people, even if they're not religious people, go, I think that has something to do with Christianity. 
The verses that are subsequent to it, though, are equally as important. So let me read for you from John 3. You won't see this on the screen. You'll just have to trust me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. All right, so the person that believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is you and me, friend. We don't want people intruding on our world. We don't want people having a say in our lives One of the reasons so many of us, and I'm going to put myself in that category, don't take in the counsel of others is because we really don't want anybody telling us something that may change our plan for our lives. And I have made a couple of errors. (laughs) That's an understatement. And I can trace the errors of my life, the ones, the real regrets I have to predetermining in my mind that I wanted to do something and then going to find people who would tell me, okay, sure, why not? Instead of really in my heart being willing to say, hey, if you don't think this is a wise move, I really want to hear what you have to say. In general revelation, there are things, and counsel is a part of that process. The people of our lives that are not necessarily the word of God, they may quote from the word of God, but the people of our lives are part of that process where you and I, if we're going to be wise and we're going to have people, we're going to have the Lord steer our lives, we're going to have to open ourselves up to what others say about our lives. God will work and teach us through them. The word of God is, and this is going to sound heretical, but I promise you reform guys in the back, it's not. Um, uh, it is not the only way that God directs lives. In fact, there are people who are unbelievers who give great wisdom to us in many ways, and we are cheating ourselves by not partaking in it. A broken clock tells time correctly twice a day, and human beings, as broken and fallen as we are, from some of the great philosophical and religious minds of history have things to say to Christians, but Christians have been like, no, I'm only going to listen to the word of God. And I want you to be drenched in God's word, but there are other places that God wants to show you things about himself. The word of God is a very specific revelation. General revelation, it's creation and the people in it can tell us and teach us things about God. As I said before, they won't contradict what we know, what has been revealed in special revelation, but there's a treasure trove of information out there. And people like us need to be people who are willing to simplistically receive some great truth about who God is. Yesterday I was in Walmart and, uh, and I walked up uh, I was, uh, you know, picking up communion wine, which is a really interesting experience when you run into a couple of Christians trying to explain that, you know. I promise, this is for church. Um, well, uh, there was the, this wonderful elderly couple, um, and I mentioned that they're African-American only because, you know, if a white 
elderly couple walked around with, do you know Jesus t-shirts? We'd assume that they got away from the group at the home. You know what I'm saying? We'd be like, oh, where's your chaperone? This nice elderly black couple was wearing these t-shirts that said, do you know Jesus? And I thought, how great is that? And I walked up to them and I said, I do. And I smiled and they, and they hugged me in the middle of Walmart. And I thought, this is great. But the simplicity of it, that I could experience God through them. We didn't break open the Bible. We didn't have a, a deep theological discussion. We experienced something magnificent in that moment. I did. <laughs> Can't speak for them. I can tell you that I thought, you know what, I encountered God here. And it wasn't ultra-intellectual And it made me think about what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount about the meek inheriting the earth and the pure of heart seeing God. And nowhere in that discourse did he say those with advanced degrees get to be closer to God because they're just smarter than everybody else and they can figure everything out. And yet, as somebody who's attempting to get a doctorate and reads people, all who have doctorates, I can see that we would be in danger of thinking that unless it's coming from the rich, deep soil of intellectual prominence, that we would think, "Eh, there's nothing for me there. In reality, all of creation, even the parts of creation that you don't think are as informed as other, they have things to share with you and me. You see, because God's world, everything in it reveals his glory. Second thing I'll share with you today is this. Not only does God's world reveal his glory, God's word, his special revelation, reveals his grace. Listen to these four descriptions of what the benefits of the scriptures are. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. These verses say that following God's word will make us wise and give us direction. But let me be very clear. God's word isn't just a guidebook. It's an autobiography telling the story of his grace. It's a a book that's contained and, and told in very different ways. There's poetry we're studying here in the Psalms and songwriting. There's historical accounts. There's prophetic revelation. There's all kinds of things that are contained in the scriptures. And his glory is communicated and and his character is communicated in all those particular ways. And so the goal of reading scripture is not just to memorize directives so that we can obey them like robots and never make any mistakes or have anything bad happen in our lives. This is part of the process of getting to know Almighty God. He has chosen in this autobiography to show you things about himself. Like the artist who paints and you go, I see something, I see the joy of your life in that. The soulful singer who says, you know what, my heart is breaking. You learn something about them in that. And in the same way, God Almighty has written in such a way to us in his special revelation that we would see specifically who he is. And that is the beauty, really, of the scriptures with regards to our faith in Jesus. Through the word, we see and understand the specific things God wants us to know about him in relationship with him. And through the wisdom of his commands, we are given what theologians often refer to as a means of grace. 
one of the ways that God has broken from eternity into time to say, I'm going to give you a picture. That's why we contend that the scriptures are divinely inspired. They give us a picture of the character of God. And in, according to verse 8, it is what would give us joy. Prism's hope, one of our, uh, our starting point in mission, which is that believers would be revived in their enthusiasm about God and their desire to love him and love others and serve others and, and reach others. It all starts with you and I being revived in the soul. And this verse is, is very clear to us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This revival comes from the revelation of God and his word, not magically through carrying around a Bible or having Bibles in our pews or by simply owning a Bible. It's the substance and subject of its pages. It's who his word reveals to you and me that will bring about revival in our soul. It's what we need. It's what will bring us life. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, speaking of Jesus and his incarnation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in him, I want to read that again. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, on earth or on heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus pursued you and I. He reconciled himself to us. And as part of that, he has revealed who the Father is. When people ask me, you know, is there, are there multiple ways to know God? And I say, there are ways in a general sense that we can know about God. But if you're looking specifically to know, I can guarantee you what the character of God is like. All you have to do is look into the face of Jesus Christ. This is what Colossians tells us. He is the, in, he's the exact representation. He's the mirror image. Have you ever wondered how God feels about you after you've blown it huge? Well, all you have to do is look at how he dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery. Imagine the verbiage caught in adultery. I mean, how humiliating would that be? But what was Jesus? He was sweet. He was forgiving. He was gracious. Ever gotten uppity with people and proud? You ever wonder how Jesus deals with uppity, proud people who think they don't really need him or others to tell him what, tell him, tell him what to do? Well, you can see what Jesus de- deals with. Uppity, proud people, he opposes. He stands against them. He brings them low. Our hope is that we be revived in our souls. And God, in his grace, has not waited for us to pursue him. He's not waited for us to get our stuff together because he knew we couldn't and we wouldn't. 
This is good news, such good news that here in the psalm, in verse 10, it says they, these words are more precious than gold, more than pure gold. If I told you there was gold in your backyard, would you be spending any more time at lunch than you needed to today? I mean, granted, we're going to enjoy Zanku chicken and have some fellowship, but if I told you, hey, there's a million dollars in pure gold about five feet deep in your backyard, would you really go to Zanku today with us? I mean, I'd head home, and I'd probably head by Home Depot on the way home to pick up a, piece, a couple of pieces of equipment because uh, even though I don't have the money to rent them now, I will tomorrow, and so we'll charge it on the credit card and get it. And uh, you and I, with enthusiasm unbounded, would dig we would mine for this stuff. And yet, you and I are seemingly dispassionate about our pursuit of the Scriptures as the place where we can learn of the character of God. We're told that its contents are more precious than gold, which would seem to indicate that we would be people that would dig and dig voraciously to find the truth of God's Word that we wouldn't be people who wouldn't be responsive. Our response to grace is greater humility and a greater hunger, which is why the psalm concludes in verses 12 through 14, Psalm 19, King David writes, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. And here's the meditation that should be our daily thought. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The truth be told, folks, is until we are people who see the glory and grace of God, both in creation and in Scripture, until we see that Jesus is more patient and more loving and more kind towards you than you can conceivably imagine, that you are more important to him than you can even possibly believe, until those truths that we mine through Scripture and creation begin to take root in our heart, we won't be people who respond in repentance and say, may the words of my heart May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. We will not want to please God until we see him for how gargantuan, how glorious, how holy, and yet how wonderfully gracious he is. This is what will produce a heart that desires to please him. These things are only possible if we're certain that we're connected to God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit through whom we freely come. I was stunned by a story I caught in the last few days about an Arizona family, a Christian couple, and their, a man and his pregnant wife who fled the U.S. for religious reasons and got lost at sea. I read from the Associated Press, Hannah Gestangue, 26, said Saturday that she and her husband, quote, decided to take a leap of faith and see where God led us. When they took their two small children and her father-in-law and set sail from San Diego for the tiny island nation of Kiribati in May. 
But just weeks into their journey, the Gastonways hit a series of storms that damaged their boat, leaving them adrift for weeks, unable to make progress. They were eventually picked up by a Venezuelan fishing vessel, transferred to a Japanese cargo ship, and taken to Chile, where they are resting in a hotel in the port of San Antonio. Hannah Gastonway and her family said they were fed up with government control in the U.S. As Christians, they didn't believe in, quote, abortion, homosexuality, in the state-controlled church. The article goes on to say that the Gastonways weren't members of any church. And Hannah Gastonway said their faith came from reading the Bible and through prayer. This is the quote that really caught me off. The Bible is pretty clear. And I have to tell you, as a student of the Bible, it's not always really clear, especially to my broken mind. I continue with the story. The family moved in November from Ash Fork, Arizona to San Diego, where they lived on their boat as they prepared to set sail. She said she gave birth to the couple's eight-month-old girl on the boat, which was docked in the slip at the time. And in May, her 30-year-old husband and father Mike and the couple's daughters set off. They wouldn't touch land again for 91 days. The last piece of this article that I'll read is what, they, what the police said. They were looking for kind of adventure. They wanted to live on a Polynesian island, but they didn't have sufficient expertise to adequately navigate. I mean, isn't this the story of our lives? We think we know best, so independent of any spiritual influence other than our own two cents, we make a determination that we're going to do something, and we're not going to listen to anybody else unless they confirm what we say. And then we launch out and expect everything to go our way, and then when it doesn't, we wonder what happened. And then we look back and say, oh, that's right, we probably didn't have the necessary navigational experience. We didn't know how to navigate this life adequately. When you read stories like this, like me, do you find yourself saying, goodness gracious, why did they have to be Christians? Because, you know, you go, why is it every time I read an article about a religious person, they're doing something stupid? And maybe that's me too, and you maybe are equally as foolish, but I say we have to learn from this. We have to learn from this and say to ourselves, we don't know everything. We need help. We are broken people, flawed people. We need not just one counselor. We need 10 counselors. We need people in every walk of life. Before we make a decision or even think to formulate a decision, we need to get as much information as possible. We most certainly need to discern what we can about the character of God from creation, but we need to be drenched in the scriptures as we ask ourselves the important question, who is going to have the right to speak into our lives. Who, friend, is going to have the, the access to be a guide in your life? Who or what will you give authority to to speak into your life for your good and say what you're doing is not healthy and you're going to be harmed? It is God's intention that you and I would see and experience his grace as we trust him and allow him to speak into our lives through other people. So let's pray that we be that kind of people, okay? 
Father, we are selfish by nature, according to your word. And I can say that, speaking for myself, that I'm just selfish. I want what I want. And you've got a better plan.